This is Joshua Bell with the Tilt and the Cloth. We are starting in Exodus chapter 12. Technically, we're supposed to start at verse 13, but I don't want to start without reading verse 11 and 12. Uh, again, I want to remind you that a lot of the book of Exodus' goal is to really set up some of the early traditional festivals that they would have had as Jews. And, and they got to escape from Egypt. So like the, the old, ultimate, if like I said in the last book, the meta-narrative for Exodus is to say, this is why we do the things that we do, not how we got there, right? So uh, Pesach is the, or Passover is, is the biggest uh, festival for them. And, and it's a huge, um, huge thing. People travel from all over the world to participate in this uh, moment. That, that's why, again, I, I, don't, I don't like to put Jesus with the Hebrew Bible, but if we're doing it, one of the things that we know that the reason that Jesus was traveling to Jerusalem at the end of his existence was he was going to Passover in Jerusalem. And so that, that's a, so it didn't matter where they lived, they all ascended or descended upon uh, Jerusalem for Passover. That's how big of a deal it is. So this is the origination story of that, how, how Passover began, how it really is looked at. Uh, now, again, the problem with this is, is that as we look at it through these lenses, we know that they, they wrote this in a way to say, this is what you should do. It doesn't mean that they did it, right? Like there are bits and pieces of it. We know that they absolutely did. Um, but, you know, over time, things change based off of people and cultures and in, in, in new, new ways of things. So it, is Passover still established this way today? Well, no, because you have to have a tent. That's another problem with this. So the people that are writing this have either had a temple or known of the time that they had, when they had a temple. Um, and the tabernacle, they knew the stories of the tabernacle. So the, where the tabernacle was is where the temple was built eventually. Right? So the tabernacle traveled with them, where it rested in Jerusalem, this is where they built the temple on top of that ground. That's where God set foot on earth. So the people that are writing this, have experienced the temple experience and the tabernacle. Why does that matter? The burnt offerings. The burnt offerings are the biggest part of Passover. Remember, when we, when we read this today, I want you to listen to these words about how, the, how God passes over the houses for Sodom. It passes over the houses. There's this idea that there's an offering that one must make in order for God to hear us. Notice how they were very articulate about what kind of land they used, how they were going to use the land. Um, and so, so there's, there's, this, is, this is not done in such a way to just say, uh, this is bits and pieces of things. It's, it's telling us the whole story. Uh, but burnt offerings, in order for this to work, they had to have a specific way to make that happen. And this story tells us how that works. So any comments before I uh, go into this? And I just realized, Betty and Diane, that you are on my camera. Uh, that's my microphone, so I need to fix that real quick. And there we are. We are on the right microphone now. Does that sound different? Yes, much better. Thank you. Yeah, sorry. It was a, just the wrong microphone. Um, so let's let's kind of go into this and, and remember, actually, before we go into that, I want you all just to do an exercise with me before we get into this. Uh, I want you to think of the one part of worship today that really means a lot to you. Just the one part. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be. And, and, I, and I want you to think about like it could be, I like this hymn because, or I like it when we sing this because. I like the doxology because, or I like communion because. So you got that in your head? Which part of that worship piece is yours? Now for just a few minutes, I'd like for you to describe that to me if you wouldn't mind. 
Does anybody have one that they'd like to describe? Well, I can't describe a hymn, but I I love the hymns. And I can tell a difference in what I sang when I was younger and the words that mm -hmm. I'm seeing now, and they mean much more to me. Oh, neat. Oh, see, like, like that's a really good example. So sometimes you're seeing words. You're not just seeing words, that it means something. You feel something. I agree. And I have a horrible voice. Uh, it doesn't matter about the voices. <laughs> Joyful notes, not professional. I'm going to sing better when I get to heaven. That's right. That's what we tell you. I agree. They mean more to me yeah. now than what yeah. they used to. So that would be yours too, the hymns? Mm -hmm. Because I go home and I sing them in my head. All day and all night. So there must be something they must impact me. That's amazing. You know. Anybody else want to share? I've actually got two. I love the hymn, Standing on Holy Ground. Mm -hmm. And the more that I study and know his word, the deeper meaning that has for me. I haven't heard it in a long time. I wish they'd almost sing it every Sunday to remind people where they are. Um, the second one is, I'm a sinner saved by grace. And every time I hear that, that just really humbles me more. And it kind of centers me back to reality of really who I am. <laughs> awesome. I think before we went into, before the COVID, what meant so much to me was during communion when the elders, when the deacons served the communion to the congregation, I was able to sit and do more prayer and, and bring myself into that time of, you know, asking for forgiveness. Today, when we just go right straight into taking the emblems, it doesn't, I can't sit there and reflect like I could when we took time for the deacons to, does that make sense? That's exactly what I'm asking these questions. I don't feel like I'm taking enough time to sit and reflect. <clears throat> Thank pray. you. That's, I was trying to, for me, it's any time that I can quiet my mind down in mm -hmm. church. And I was trying to remember right before communion or right around communion when I used to do that. And I'm sitting there going, well, there's not, but it was when everybody else was being served. Right. I mean, it was quiet mm -hmm. and I could concentrate on me, not what was going on anywhere else. And the organ was playing. And sort of get that a little bit at the beginning mm -hmm. with the, the prelude. Mm -hmm. But then there's no me time during the service, if that makes sense, because there's something going on the whole time. There's no, I have to, if I calm, and when I say calm my mind, just stop paying attention to everything else and concentrate on me and God, I have to force it. There just simply isn't a time when, something's not going to happen or I'm not getting ready to do something or and I have to say that's with me enjoying the seats in the back where there's not as much distraction I have grandkids so they don't distract me when mm -hmm. they're running right. around screaming right well and in the early service I was always on the front row on the first you know mm -hmm. go but when I came back to my seat and sat down and everybody else was walking up, then that was my quiet time. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm saying. Mine's during, mine's not necessarily during communion, but communion itself. Because I find that if I had not been to church and had communion, my weeks, that following week is usually <laughs> terrible. <laughs> And so I feel like that there's a communion between me and God on that Sunday when I'm taking communion. That um, I find myself closer to. That's awesome. Sally, do you have one? I was going to say prayers, not just yours, but yours and 
the elders and whatever else goes on, um, whatever they say for offering, whatever those things are, because then I get different ideas or different thoughts. And then what I might do my own self. It's awesome. Betty, Diane, did you want to share one? I'm like Sally, the prayers, but I also am kind of like them saying, nowadays we don't have time to, with communion, we don't have time, we don't take time to get in that one-on-one -on -one with God. Diane, you're one of my uh, faithful online watchers. What is it that you're, might be one of your favorite parts of the worship? The hymns. They mean a lot to me. They bring me closer to God. And I, I just, they mean just more to me. Uh now than they did before just like they were saying um and the quiet time to pray <clears throat> it seems like like they said during since covid it um doesn't seem like there's as much time to just sit and be calm well and and so since all of you shared i I, I, I know that for me, uh, I'm, I'm seeing that there's a beginning and a middle and an end. It's not that I'm trying to get to the end, but there is a, a sense of urgency to, to do that in, a, in an orderly fashion. And I say that because my role then becomes, I have a responsibility to help provide those types of opportunities. Like, and so... I know that we basically the bulletin's a roadmap. It doesn't mean that we have to follow it perfectly, right? Uh, it helps staying somewhat focused, um, but it's not necessarily the the end all to beat all. But I it, so if I'm being totally honest with you all, the probably the part that I'm able to slow and still my mind and feel the presence of God, it it's it's either during the prelude which is a new thing, right? It's, it's a thing that we kind of started from COVID and I really like it. Uh, I don't get any complaints about that ever. I have not gotten one. I probably will now that I threw it out in the universe, but. <laughs> that, that helps me come to church. Right. If, if that makes sense. It does. I, I can, mm -hmm. It started. And I mean, announcements for me have always been the bane of my existence. I cannot stand the fact that we do them, but if I don't do them, it will always be said, well, no one's ever said anything, you know? <laughs> and, and so I do them, but so for me, Nancy's prelude, I have to turn my brain off. Like, and I have to get connected. If I don't have that, I feel extremely disconnected the rest of the service. Now, the other part might be when she's playing uh, during the offering. Um, she, she's very, I just, I just know, how picky she is when it comes to music. And so the music that she picks out for the offering, well, all the music she picks out, but the music she picks out to the off, for the offering is truly an offering unto God. So like it's, this song feels like this for me today. And she just puts so much emphasis in it, you know? And I just love all the little other pieces, but for me, there's this, you, like you all said, there's just a, there's that moment where I can, I can, I can stop and not have to worry about the schedule and then just be, just be in the midst of that. But then the sermon oh always means a lot to well, me. I, I mean, appreciate that. It, it's not necessary, it, but there are moments in, there are times. Know, that, there are some Sundays that I walk out scratching my head, but there are yeah, most Sundays so. I go out thinking. Uh, I, I, I found myself that. at the 815 and the 10 service have been more alike than the not in the, in the last month or so. I think I've been kind of more focused, but 
what happens usually is the 815 service is the trial run. Like, does this, does this work? You know, you know, I'm on my experiment. And then by the time I get to the 1030, I'm like, yeah, that story's got to go. Uh, or this is not a good plan. Uh, and then the nice part about this is that that one's recorded and I don't have to think about it. Well, and the reason I'm making such a big deal out of this, you know, is, is that Exodus is that. They were sitting around talking about how it is that they feel the presence of God and Passover was their place. Right. So this, this is, this is the impetus in which I want you to read these next couple chapters, because what's going to happen is, is from here on and all the way through chapter 13, we're going to start to see these rituals and they're not explaining them in a sense of saying, this is how you have to do it. And it's, it's really saying, you remember that one time that we did this in worship? This is where that came from. Because they don't have, they don't have the, uh, the centuries of tradition and ritual that you all have inherited. And they're, they're trying to come up with this. They're trying to come up with a, a diagram, if you will, of what worship is. And to them, that burnt offering is extremely important. There's this humility that takes place in this that you don't to see anywhere else. You know, one of the things that I think is awesome about it is it's also rushed. You know, it's it's uh, it starts off with verse eleven. You know, it, it, it's it's a rushed experience, and then God takes over from that point on. This is a, a strong passage of scripture to say that that sometimes that we get in the way of God. Right, this is that moment for the Jewish culture. Um, and so with that being said, that's the mindset I want us to have when we read this. Yeah, there's a lot of minutiae, right? Like there's this person walking around in this and this person doing that. But really, if you listen to the undercurrent that's going on, it's about worship um, and how they, they're formulating their understanding of worshiping God without having all of the traditional ritual stuff that you guys have had for centuries. Some of it's given by God, though. Yeah, some of it's I mean, given to him. Yeah, and 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 it's the language. That's the part I want us to be careful about too. Because if I want to say that this is something that we need to do, I'm going to say the phrase "God told me." I mean it. Like I mean, it's like the the prayer labyrinth. I really do feel like that. Put it on my heart that we need to set up a place for people to be able to come and pray, even if it's just a prayer labyrinth. But I'm going to say that because I, I want people to know this is what God has put upon my heart. That's the difference, right? Like, so if God's speaking it to them, they're saying, God's put this upon our heart in such a way that we want you to have this experience. That's a really good thing to think about as we're going through this. Okay, let's go. If you let you all ready, if you have more conversation. All right. This is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded. Your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it hurriedly. It is a Passover offering to the Lord. I started at verse 11. For that night, I will go through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. I will make out punishments to all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. And the blood on the houses where you are staying shall be a sign for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over, or uh, it's not really protect, but the commentary says protect Pesach, but yeah, it's, it's another conversation. Uh, but it's it's a pass passing over the house. Um, so that no plague will destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be to you one of remembrance. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord throughout the ages. You shall celebrate it as an institution for all time. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the very first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day to the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from East Israel. You see, you see the little jab there right off the bat? Uh, you shall celebrate a sacred occasion on the first day and a sacred occasion on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them, only what every person is to eat. That alone may be prepared for you. You shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For on this very day I brought your ranks out of the land of Egypt. You shall observe this day throughout the ages as an institutional, as an institution for all time. 
aka matzah has been created. In the first month from that 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the money, month at, at evening. No leaven shall be found in your houses for seven days. For whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall again be cut off from the community of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a citizen of the country. Now, now, did you hear the language of the country? There's no country yet. Yeah. Right? So this is obviously being written back later. Mine uh, says community. Mine says land. Yeah, it says land. Land. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a, uh, it's, yeah, it's definitely a, a comeback conversation. Um, and then you shall eat nothing leavened in all your settlements. You shall eat unleavened bread. Moses then summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go pick out lambs for your families and slaughter the Passover offering. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and to the two doorposts. None of you shall go outside the door of, out of his house until morning. For when the Lord goes to, to smite the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, and the Lord will pass over Pesach again, the door. And, and this and that one, that Passover is Pesach, a.k.a. protect. The Lord will protect the door and not let the destroyer enter and smite your home. You shall observe this as an institution for all time for you and your descendants. And when you enter the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall observe this right. And when your children ask... What do you mean by this rite? You shall say it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord because he passed over, protected, the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but saved our houses. Then the people bowed low in homage and the Israelites went and did so just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. So, Right off the bat, boom, this is your, this is why we do this. And when you teach your children, did you catch that? And when you teach your children and they ask what we're doing, this is why we do this. This is the thing I think Christians stink at. <laughs> I think we don't tell them why. When our kids ask us what we do, what do we do? Just because. We Just because. <laughs> or we say, hey, go ask Josh or go ask Sarah. We've always done it. Or we've always done it this way. <laughs> this, this is a beautiful way. This is the moment. This is when God protected his people. The Talmud does a much better example of this story, but it's very short and sweet, just like this. But it's it's just an interesting conversation, I think, about Christian education. When we're talking about what it is that we do as followers of Jesus, it's not just a childlike conversation. It's about adults as well. When people come to our church and we say the communion is completely open to anyone that believes in Jesus Christ, their eyes pop out of their head. They're like, really? I can have communion? Absolutely. But I'm Catholic. I don't care. It's between you and God. Our job is to remember that last supper. And if you want to participate in it, that's between you and God. I'm, my conscience is clear. I hope yours is as well. You know, like that's that's the idea. Uh, this, this, is, this is hard for us to grasp, you know, as, as Christians. However, we can do better. What are you going to say? I was just going to say ours isn't quite as documented as well. No, no, ours is definitely not as documented. <laughs> we, we can't go to the Bible and say mm -hmm. word just, for word what why no. we're doing this. No, we just we just use Corinthians and say this sounds good, and it's really only the the words of institution that we use biblically. So, yeah, it's a good point. How do you spell facade? Oh, uh, P-E-S-A-C-H. Anytime that they've got the, they always put C-H, which in, for us is ch, but pasach, but for us it's it's like Fleming. <laughs> That's all I can ever think of when I hear it. Yeah. So what is hyssop? Uh, hyssop is just like, like a weed. it's just a weed, literally. Oh, it's I, a weed. It's yeah, it's literally a weed. So it grows all over the place. So it just got stuck in here because that's what they were using. Yeah. And 
and it's in there because and it's, readily it's readily available. Yeah, it's readily available. It's all over the place. You can grab it and go. And it looks it's kind of they, like it's what they put the vinegar on to give to Jesus. That's exactly right. Process. It looks like a kind of like a sponge, funky looking cactus. <laughs> so if you do it, you use hyssop to make paintbrushes. That's oh. how they would paint their houses. So they'd have that in Israel. Oh yeah, all over the place. Every, every, all over the place there. Yeah, it grows everywhere. It was super cool. I wanted to grab some and take home with me, but then they said it would make it customs, so <laughs> I didn't. But it, it's a uh, yeah, because it's it looks just like they, you can use it for paintbrushes, but it's spongy and it's neat. So only other thought I'm gonna throw out is there's no one else here, but and this is God doing all this. That's right. I mean. That's right. There's no and then messenger. Moses is to repeat it. Yeah, there's no messenger. There's no angel. That's right. God is speaking directly to Moses, and Moses is telling Aaron to tell the people. And anytime that Moses is speaking to the elders, it's actually Aaron, which is why they include him at the very end. The Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. That's how they're getting away with this. But God's striking everybody down. That. Another weird moment, right? Because in the other passages of scripture, in the book of Genesis specifically, we know that when we talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, God sends melks or messengers to go and be on behalf of him. And they're the ones that smite Sodom and Gomorrah, not God in its or God's self, because they'd say God's self at this point. But even in even in, in the book, the story of Noah, God tells Noah, and then God wipes the earth. But it's, it's this weird language here that ties us back to the Noah story. I guess That's on purpose. I guess this is the closest that I can think of right now where God's doing things for the Jewish people. That's right. Soon enough, the temple will show up and... And then we mess it all up. And they'll be going <laughs> through humans. But I mean... That's right. God told them to build a tabernacle, they built the temple, right? Like, we can't have a Malibu, we got to have a Cadillac. <laughs> like that's that's really how they, they did I can, I can hear myself telling my mom and dad when I was 15, no, mom, I don't want to drive the 1979 Dodge Maxi Wagon church bus. I want another <laughs> car. Well, this is given to you. It's God's giving this to you. Not, and then I say, sure, but I would rather have your old car than drive the church van. Guess which one ran all the way through high school and not the car that I bought? The church thing. You know, it's it's one of those, it's one of those weird moments. So, and yeah, Robert, it's 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 very cool that you caught on to that because it's it's in the background. That's this idea going on in the background that God is guiding us to do these things. And if it's a God thing, we don't have to work for it. That that's also part of this. So let's keep going. This is where free will comes in. Yes, big time. Big time. In the middle of the night, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all of the firstborn of the cattle. And Pharaoh rose in the night with all the courtiers and all of the Egyptians, because there was a loud cry in Egypt, where there was no house, where there was not someone dead. He summoned Moses and Aaron in the night and said, up, depart from among my people, you and the Israelites with you. Go, worship the Lord as you said. Take also your flocks and your herds as you said and be gone. And may you bring a blessing upon me also. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. uh, The Egyptian urged the people on and patient to have them leave the country for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls wrapped in their cloaks, Upon their shoulders, the Israelites had done Moses' bidding and borrowed from the Egyptian objects of silver. Notice how they worked that. They said borrowed. Mine says asked. They yes. obviously weren't going to give them back. That's right. Right? <laughs> of silver and gold and clothing. And the Lord had disposed the Egyptians favorably toward the people. And they let them have their request. Thus they stripped the Egyptians. <laughs> The Israelites joined from Ramesses to Succoth about 600,000 men on foot, aside from children. Moreover, a mixed multitude went up with them. No women, right? Because why would we count them? Uh, Moreover, a mixed multitude went up with them and for very much livestock, both flocks and herds, and they baked 11 cakes of the dough that they had taken out of Egypt, for it was not leavened 
since they had been driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The length of time that the Israelites lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430th year, to the very day, all the ranks of the Lord departed from the land of Egypt. That was for the Lord, a night of vigil to bring them out of the land of Egypt. The same night is the Lord's one of vigil for all the children of Egypt, I'm sorry, children of Israel throughout the ages. The Lord said to Moses, oh, wait, you have a question? I have a question. Yep. On the killing of the, the firstborn, uh-huh. would like, um, evidently Moses must not have been a firstborn, was Aaron. I mean, they, how old, what was the A, I mean, do we have any idea? I mean, okay, we're cutting this off at 18. You the first one and then two. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, sure. Okay. So we don't know. That's that's the answer. <laughs> okay. Sorry yeah. I asked. The Talmud said uh-huh. there was one firstborn of the Egyptians that was not killed. That's right. His, did they give you his name? It was her. It was a her. That's right. <laughs> Moses, the lady who raised Moses. That she, was, oh. she came to him complaining. And he's said, you are the firstborn of your mother and you're all right, and you will never be harmed. Well, that's how it happened. Did she stay in the house, or she go back, or does it say? say? It doesn't say. Yeah, just she just gets brought up. And it, it is, it's awesome how the Talmud does this, but the, the ancient texts, remember, it's very ancient, primitive, right? Like, they're, they're just very cut and dry. So, into their minds, uh, culturally, uh, a, a boy becomes a man after the bar mitzvah. A woman becomes like a girl becomes a woman after the bat mitzvah. Uh, so it's uh, 12, 13 ish. Maybe I wouldn't even say that that old, but uh, in between 10 and 12. And so after that, you're, a, you're an adult. You're supposed to be providing for your family somehow or starting to learn your trade. It's usually what happens. So now, I say that, Kim, and, 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 and we have taught that uh, for over a century, that women and men became women and men after their rites of ritual, you know, uh, what I'm starting to say. But the problem with this is, anthropologically, they may have been considered, like as after our baptism experience, you are a different person at this point. But at that point, you were to start learning a trade. And really, just like in our culture, what we have found is, is that they weren't really considered adults until they moved out, got married, and started t- providing for their own family, one way or the other. So why does that matter? Well, this story would have been told in such a way that they're thinking babies, anything below that age group. So it, it wouldn't, they wouldn't have thought 18. They would have thought, oh. That kid hasn't gone through the ritualistic rites. The problem with this also, though, in this story is they didn't know the ritual rites. This is this predates bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs. They're just living out in the wilderness as, as far as they're concerned. They're in Egypt. They're not practicing anything. But basically, they barely know who God is. This is the whole point of the story. And the biggest part of the story is now we have to establish who we are. So for them, firstborn, period. And the people that are writing this are supposed, again, you're supposed to know these things, are, are saying that, well, this had to be the people that hadn't gone through the ritual rites to make them adults. But we're talking about Egyptians, and they didn't have those rites anyway. That's right. That makes no sense at all. I know. That's the whole <laughs> point. So for them, it's not to make sense. It's not to make sense. The point was that they had to be hurried, get the stuff ready to go, and off they went. So it's not the important part of the story. Yeah. In a way. It it, it (laughs) is and it isn't. Yeah. Right. Like it's that's why I said yes, because we they're not going to focus in on the age. Because again, anthropologically, they're not thinking age, they're thinking we wanted to make sure that Egypt kicks us out, like. And sends us off with all of their money. So thank you very much. Goodbye. Paying you to leave. Yeah, paying you to leave. Does that sound familiar? Mm-hmm. We had two other stories like this before. 
Remember, a Abraham and a Pharaoh had an experience just like that, right? One of his sons has an experience just like that. The Pharaoh says, here, take all of my stuff and go away. <laughs> this time it's like, uh, no, now take all of our stuff and leave. Go, don't ever come back. Take your flocks, your herds, everything. Get away from here. And the years matter too. So for them, the 430 years, that's that's more than 10 generations. So it's that's how far disconnected they are from their original practices. Up until this point, does anybody remember the only practice that they had? Um, I know what comes to mind is <laughs> welcoming strangers into the house. Sure. <laughs> There's definitely that one. There's the one that no one I realizes. I can't think of the word. All I'm thinking is castration. That's not what I mean. Circumcision. <laughs> <laughs> Someone is with you on that one. <laughs> That's what happens when you get old. You can't think of the word you want. <laughs> well, that's, that's the only other ritual that we have, have been given is, is a circumcision and the welcoming of strangers. You see how crazy that is? So, yeah, let's be circumcised. Uh, <laughs> Come on in, let's be circumcised. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> So the well, only ritual that they know at this point is the circumcision and the the, the ritual of meals and stuff. So, so then, any other questions? Well, it's kind of interesting that they wanted to prove that Egypt that Egypt sent them out, but then they go after Well, after Jesus was born, God sent them back to. Egypt. Egypt. Sure. But that's another hundreds of years. Yes, it is. I just think it's interesting that though he sent them back after I don't know. Oh no, it's cool. Yeah, and I, I think that's on purpose, Karen. I think I'm sure it is. Anything they, God does <laughs> Yeah, the, there's there's a there's a really cool thing that I love about when you study the Bible in this lens, right? Like if you study the Bible this lens, you start to find that there's specific places that mean a lot to them, uh, whether it's good or bad or indifferent, and they always get brought back up. Galilee, for example, is, is brought up so many different times in the Hebrew Bible because it's the only place with fresh water, right? I mean, it's, it's the only place. It's, the, uh, it's, it's a, for lack of a better phrase, it's a Mecca for all types of cultures. Um, Egypt is another one of those places. It's a huge cosmopolitan place that somebody could literally be anonymous in. It's that big. That's how Egypt is looked at throughout their culture historically. Um, so there's this really interesting thing that takes place that even in this story, you're, you're hearing bits and pieces, but this is the beginning of those stories. So like here's, we know that we're going to have to go to some place. And notice that they're already using their name. Right, it's gone. We are now fully Israelites. They're no longer Hebrews and, and or followers of Abraham. They are fully Israelites, and so that's that's the reason I'm making the big deal. Is here this is, and that they're talking about the country Israel. There has not been a mention of that at this point. God has not shown them the promised land, so they have no idea where they're going. They don't, they don't even know because Moses hasn't even told them that yet. Right, so there's this. There's an interesting thing that's going to take place here where sometimes the cart's before the horse. And it's, uh, but it's okay. For them, it's all right. It, it's, uh, it's a storytelling technique that helps us in that moment. And yes, Karen, I think there's some definitely connection there from when you start talking about Jesus, the writers of the gospels were Jewish, you know? So there's, there's gotta be a connection there. Uh, and this makes sense to connect it to the place that we had escaped from. Now we escape to. There's a, it's on purpose. Any others? Here's where it gets fun. Verse 43. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the law. This is literally the law. It's barit in the Hebrew, which means covenant or a, a.k.a. the law of the Passover offering. No foreigner shall eat of it. But any slave or man who is bought may eat of it once he has been circumcised. Uh, no bound or hired laborer shall eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, 
nor shall you break a bone of it. The whole community of Israel shall offer it. If a stranger who dwells with you would offer the Passover to the Lord, all his males must be circumcised. Many shall be admitted to offer it. He shall then be a citizen of the country, but no uncircumcised person may eat of it. There shall be one law for the citizen and for the stranger who dwells among you. And all the Israelites did so. So the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. That very day, the Lord freed the Israelites from the land of Egypt, troop by troop. Uh, so, yeah, there you go. If you want to eat any of the Passover feast, all you got to do is be circumcised. No problem. So this is really, I mean, kind of prior to this law. Uh-huh. Being circumcised was kind of a, eh, I mean, not really a, you know, a had to thing. But this makes it a wow. have to thing. Right. I mean, well, yeah, if you're a slave you, in the household, you were supposed to have been circumcised. But the, what the Levitical priests that are putting this together have implied is, is that that tradition had fallen away. So when we have now, we, now we have a Passover. Long, they forgot. That's exactly right. Which is again why they put the years four hundred and some odd years. Uh, so then, when you have that moment, then you've got to explain well that Passover offering. Yes, everyone in the household is supposed to eat it. However, the slaves can't unless they are uh, circumcised. Uh, this is this is a big deal. Notice that it even includes the people of Torah. Remember, Torah is all about hospitality. One hundred percent about hospitality. Finding a stranger, bringing them in their midst, uh, feed the feed the stranger. That's a Levitical conversation. Well, they can't eat of the Passover offering unless they're circumcised. I, I was going to ask about that because now the door shut. I That's mean, boom, slammed shut. If, they, if this happened to Abraham, the angels would have, might not have made it in. They probably would not have. No. And the, the funny thing about the experience is Leviticus and Deuteronomy changed that again. They, they say, well, that was really nice. Thank you for that law, God, but we're going to go ahead and change it to Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And, uh, do our own thing. Do our own thing. Notice this, this is almost in the same language as the Ten Commandments. Uh, that's that's how big of a deal this is to them. Makes it interesting if you're approaching one of their houses during Passover, whether you're going to get to eat or not. Uh, that's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah, the, there's no wonder. <laughs> So there's there's a there's there's it's an interesting conversation. Uh, so then verse chapter thirteen verses one through six. I'm definitely going to try to get through as far as we can in chapter thirteen. The Lord spoke further to Moses, saying, "Consecrate to me every firstborn man and beast." So now we've gotten rid of all the first men, firstborn men and beasts in Egypt. Now we have to consecrate our own. Uh, firstborn man and beast, the first issue of every womb among the Israelites is mine. Now, this is where the Talmud comes in, Billy. This is that part of the conversation. So the Talmud talks about this woman. Notice that it says the firstborn person, right? It did say it started off with the man. At the end, the first issue of every womb among the Israelites is mine. That's the end of chapter verse 2. That's not just the men, it's also the women. This is a big controversial thing in a, in a lot of circles. Well, then it said she was the firstborn of her mother. That's right. And, and that is a Talmudic understanding, right? You can't be Jewish unless your mom is. So, so here it is. This is, I always want to point this out because it's not just the men here. This is the firstborn of the womb. So it could have been women also that were being consecrated, which is Huge, huge conversation anthropologically. What, what does your say right after that belongs to me, comment? Mine says whether man or animal. Well, mine just says every woman among the Israelites is mine. Okay. Period. Then mine says, okay. okay. Uh, obviously, on this translation, man means humankind. I mean, it, right. it's not arguing. No, no, no. It's just, it's just trying to make sure that we have everybody there. Yeah, translations here are, I think, are very generous. I mean, it, it, King James does not do us a lot of favors in this moment, but I still think that translators were very generous with the language. At that time, it had been a patriarchal society that would have focused in on the man version of the word. 
but I think even even in the other translations, they, they try to be good here. The only time that you start to see it really get changed is this when you start talking about uh, the heads of the household conversation. And then the language has a bit of a problem with the translation. But So in this case, Robert, it's, it's totally safe. In verse 3, And Moses said to the people, Remember this day on which you went free from Egypt, the house of bondage, how the Lord freed you from it with a mighty hand, no leavened bread shall be eaten. You go free on this day in the month of Abib. So when the Lord has brought you into the land of, now here it goes, <laughs> the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall observe in this month with the following practice. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a festival of the Lord. Throughout the seven days of unleavened bread shall be eaten. No leavened bread shall be found with you. And no leaven shall be found in all of your territory. And you shall explain to your son on that day. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I went free from Egypt. And this shall serve you as a sign on your hand. And as a reminder on your forehead, which literally means, I think in our commentary says, between your eyes. This is a huge, huge thing in the Hebrew culture. They believe that when God touches you at birth, it's right here. It's literally this little spot on your head, not here. This is this is another ritual that comes later. Uh, they don't touch you on the back of your head. That comes later. So for them, it's boom, right there. This is where, go ahead. I was going to say, don't they still wear some of the Jewish sex or whatever? Don't they still wear so an Orthodox, yeah, so an Orthodox rabbi usually walks around with a mezuzah on during the specific rituals. And then that and that's got, you know, it's supposed to have the Torah or bits and pieces of the Torah. It's little boxes. So a little box that they have right on their forehead. They literally put it on, but it's only during temple, right? Or synagogue. Okay. Right. So they don't do it all day long. But but we haven't got there yet, but they're getting ready to establish the mezuzahs above the door. Right. So this is going to be another thing. Uh, but the right between your eyes, this is a big anthropological thing. God touches you here, not here. Um, we'll talk about that in another day. Uh, and you shall explain to your son on that day. It is because of what the Lord, oops, sorry, I missed, skipped a spot, didn't I? No, I didn't. In order that the teaching of the Lord may be in your mouth. See, right here, straight to your mouth, that with the mighty hand, the Lord freed you from Egypt. You shall keep this institution at its time from year to year. And when the Lord has brought you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and to your fathers and has given it to you, you shall set apart for the Lord every first issue of the womb. Is that what your soul says? And every male firstling that your cattle drop shall be the Lord's. There's now we're getting into Leviticus. Firstborn offerings. For every firstling, as you shall redeem it with a sheath. If you do not redeem it, you must break its neck, and you must redeem every firstborn male among your children. And then, when time to come, your son asks you, saying, uh, What does this mean? You shall say to him, It was with a mighty hand that the Lord brought us out from Egypt, the house of bondage. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord slew every firstborn in the land of Egypt. And the firstborn of both man and beast. Therefore, I sacrifice, a.k.a. make an offering to the Lord every first male issue of the womb, but redeem every firstborn among my sons. So the consecration is happening by the firstborn of your, your flock. Hence the phrase that we use in offering. You give a tenth of the first of your fruits. This is what Malachi ends up repeating later on but this is where you get that language first 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 don't give god second ever that's the or leftovers or your leftovers and it, it, it is and as it puts here if you did that you might as well just break its neck and throw it away it's not even worth the offering at that point it's very primitive and so it shall be as a sign upon your hand and as a symbol on your forehead that with a mighty hand the Lord freed us from Egypt. Now I'm going to pause right there, and we're going to start next week on verse 17, mainly because this is a different story altogether. This is when we start to talk about the Sea of Reeds. Uh, 
which is not the Red Sea, but and that's the, that's how we've taught it for centuries. So anyway, questions, comments. Right at the end, they switch from or come back to the male part. <clears throat> oh yeah, I mean mm -hmm. they. It's been firstborn, but now it's not all of a sudden towards the end. Yeah. They brought it back there. And <clears throat> I don't know why my brain never keeps them. Cain and Abel, one of them got in trouble for not bringing the best offering. Correct. Which is Cain. Like I said, I don't know why. That's okay. Brother switch. <laughs> no, it's fine. But, it's, it's a hard thing to remember. Which should be uh, anyway, you know, he got in trouble for not bringing the best, uh -huh. and it kind of fits in with the with the first. Yeah, I mean, there's that's, assumption that's that the first is the best. Thought to me because I never could figure out what was wrong with what he brought. It wasn't the best. I didn't know. It said well, it was grain. It was grain. It was grain and not. Uh, but did he have animal. livestock? I don't know. So this is the problem. I, I couldn't For, figure out why, what was wrong with if they brought the first of his grain. So, so the goal of the Cain and Abel story is really to talk about Chetah, the missing of the mark, right? That's the, it's the talk about where one human being takes power over another. That's the overarching me message there. The issue is, is we got to talk about how Cain wants to kill Abel. So what we have always said is Cain did not bring his best. But he did. It's just that it was grain, and that was not the thing that the Lord wanted. Right. The Lord wanted and it something says, else. I just look back to see, and I, he probably didn't have any because it says Abel kept the flocks and Cain worked the land. Right. So he probably didn't have any animals. See, that's why. I so it's kind that. of set against him, isn't it? <laughs> right off the bat, which is the whole point, because it's got to set up the idea of what is actual sin. Human beings, Christians especially, we have lots of sins. We just yeah. It was, that's right. But in the Hebrew world, the the most the only one can lose favor in the sight of God is as if you play God. If you take someone's life out of anger, you have missed the mark. If you wrong somebody out of something else because you can, you are playing the role of God. So therefore, you have sinned in the eyes of God, which is why we have to do the burnt offerings. So Cain gives this, he's already already behind the Abel. He, he's, he's done it wrong. Then you've got Abel who's giving, you know, good animals or whatever, and Cain gets mad. <laughs> and he kills his brother. Boom. So here, this is a perfect example of this. This Now, now we've got, okay, so now the Levitical priests are starting to narrow it down. Firstborn has to be specific. This is why you do that. And when your kids ask, why do we do this? This is what you say. So this is a, it's an interesting conversation. It doesn't stick, right? Like it's, it's mostly sticks, but it's not. Because then what they're going to end up doing is, is they're going to end up saying, well, yeah, but you can have a dove for this. You can have a pigeon for yeah. that. You can have a lamb for this. You can have a goat for that. You know, if you can't afford a lamb, you can have the dove. That's right. That's right. And so Leviticus and Deuteronomy are like, that, this know. is this is not this is not going to be feasible for them for much longer. So this is this is a big deal. Um, and and the Sea of Reeds conversation then becomes. Well, let me rephrase. Let me go back. The reason I wanted to stop here was. We started off with the story. Here's Moses having this battle with Pharaoh. Then we create rituals in between that. And then we go back to the story. You see how that works? So it's a, it's a, it's a writing technique. It's brilliant. Here's all these beautiful, fantastical things that are taking place. And all these plagues and all this awfulness that happens Okay, but now that we're really, we've got past that, let's make sure you understand that. Why we do the burnt offerings, we got to do it this way. And when your kids ask, make sure you tell them that this is why we do it this way and to remind them that this is how we do it. And then all this stuff happens. And then we say, 
And so it shall be a sign upon your hand and as a symbol on your forehead that with a mighty hand, the Lord freed us from Egypt. And then Moses decides to leave. So it's sort of like our Sunday school class. It's exactly like our Sunday school class. Interrupting you is to, but but why are they doing this? Uh That's exactly, this is Midrash. It's 100% Midrash. You, You finally are seeing it in writing. Here's the story, but now we got to talk about what it means to us, and then let's keep the story going. It's brilliant. Sorry, I get all excited about this. It's really cool. After a while, Exodus starts to annoy me, but especially when we get to the genocide part, but no big deal, you know, <laughs> other than that. But, but genocide happens, especially yeah. happened to them. Yes. Um, the land of milk and honey, the Canaanites, Hittites, what does ites mean? Uh, people of. People of. And what the other word is then, I don't know. I don't know what, I, Hittite, what Hittite place is. I, actually, I don't know what the place where the Hittites lived is called. I couldn't tell you where or why, but I saw somebody with the last name Hitt, H-I-T-T, and it went, <laughs> because I figured ice had to mean you know, where they were from or right. family or whatever, land, mm-hmm. whatever it was. It had, because they're all there, so it's indicating that it's something. Yeah, so but, the Jebusites are from a little town called Jebua, that we don't really have any place. There's another place called Amoria. Yeah, we say Parians. These are... Uh, <laughs> we don't want to be ites. <laughs> are any or all of these re- relatives? Oh, yeah. 100% relatives. So That's why he's saying it. He's saying that I'm going to give you all of the stuff. It goes back to the Ishmael story. These people go and they leave and they become something else. It's Cain's people. They leave and they become something else. Canaanite is literally coming from the people of Ham, Noah's family. Like, remember, they became the land of Canaan, the land of slaves, Ham's connection. It's, this is all Noah's family at this point. So this is on purpose. We are all created in the eyes of God, but we're not together yet. <laughs> They're not following uh, Torah. Yeah, they're not following Torah, so they're not. They're not good. That's it. So they're not actually conquering another land. They're just. They're getting what was owed to them. And they're getting rid of the ones that are not practicing Torah. Right. The occupiers. <laughs> what is the month of Abib? I have no idea. Okay. It's when you're supposed to do whatever. Yeah. Says. yeah. So, so. so that could be any month I wanted to do it in. Yeah. So we, we typically say the month. is a month and LOL is a month. And yeah. I just get those from crossword puzzles. I don't That's know right. what that means. I was wondering about that whenever the Roman calendar those. popped up, how they work well, all that What in. the Romans do is, is they make ADAR June. Oh, okay. And that's how you can go back to get to Pentecost. Hmm. So if you go there, if you get to June, then you know you've gone too far. <laughs> and that's literally how it works. I wish I was being uh, uh, facetious, but it's so Year, ADAR becomes June. Years ago, like in the early 80s, I worked at Presbyterian Hospital in Oklahoma City. Uh-huh. And we had a male baby that was born, obviously, to a Jew at the time. I, I wish I had known more about this when this incident happened. But anyway, they want they wanted this baby circumcised in our chapel not in the nursery like every other little cowboy and they i I remember them draping the altar i remember the rabbi being there i don't know if the rabbi actually did the circumcision or the pediatrician was down there anyway i just found that really fascinating yeah they still practice if they're practicing jews They'll still do it that um, and, and the rabbi does not do it anymore. The, they, they, have, they have to be present, but the pediatrician does it for them. Um, okay. I, I had this exact conversation with the rabbi because I was like, so do you have to take, because at the time I was still a paramedic. So in my head, I'm like, okay, so that's a surgical procedure. Like how does someone get away with that liability wise? Like I, I couldn't do that. I mean, I could barely, even, even at the level I was as a paramedic, the only thing I could do is maybe give them stitches, give them shots. At that time, I could, I could administer medicine and insert an IV, but I couldn't, legally, I couldn't have done something like that. So I just remember that a lot of prep in the 
in our chapel there at the hospital. And yeah, uh, obviously they had to get special permission. And sure. And why the chapel? Because uh, it's a space place of worship. Okay. Because I mean, God, God, <clears throat> we're get, we're actually going to talk about this in a couple of weeks when we get to the tabernacle story. The part that I want you all to have as we close, because I'm about to stop the recording in a second. This is what's getting ready to happen is, is that we have to talk about God stepping foot on earth. Where is God present on earth? We know that God stepped foot in the Garden of Eden. We know that God stepped foot uh, in different places. Uh, some will argue that God wrestled Jacob, right? Not an angel. Uh, some will argue that God stepped foot uh, in the Sea of Reeds. So that, that was a place of God. But what ends up being set up is, is the tabernacle becomes the place of the Holy of Holies. So over time, since the temple has been destroyed, they can uh, not appropriate, but can use a place where God has been recognized as being present. Er ergo, the chapel. So they recognize that we worship the same God. Absolutely. 100%. Nobody ever gets that right. They absolutely know that we worship the same God. They just don't like the Messiah part. So, okay. I'm going to go ahead and stop the recording.